0: A pleasure and an honor to to be up here for you before you this morning, and uh, I faithfully uh, pray that I faithfully bring you the Word of God, and that it edifies you and for those of you who have not yet put their faith and trust in the Lord, I hope that the words penetrate your heart this morning. The message is about dead faith and living faith, and it 's brought to us in the second chapter of James. In your handout, though, I want to give you just a brief background, some snippets about James, who is the author of this epistle. He is the oldest half-brother of Jesus. And Matthew tells us, and Mark tells us that. He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah during Jesus' earthly ministry. He only believed after he saw the risen Lord, and Paul tells us about that in 1 Corinthians 15.7. As a result of that, though, in his believing, he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. And read about that in several passages there that are referenced in your handout. He was martyred in 62 A.D. by the Jews, according, uh, recorded by Josephus, the ancient uh, Jewish historian. And James is the first book of the New Testament that was penned, uh, written between 44 and 49 AD. That's the best guess that we can make because of events he did or did not talk about. You can bracket that that's the time frame that he probably wrote the, New Test- the, the book of James. So I want to read to you chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 through 20, about dead faith, and then I'll go to part two later, and we'll talk about living faith. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself... The truth that James is emphasizing in this text, and that's also explained throughout all of God's word, is that what we do reveals who we are. The truth, of course, is one of the deepest and most important, at the most important level possible. James is not speaking simply of beliefs and intentions in general, but the foundational belief of saving faith. The genuineness of a profession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is evidenced more by what a person does than by what he claims. A person who professes Christ but who does not live a Christ-honoring, Christ-obeying life is a fraud. In chapter 2, James twice describes such a faith as being dead. Here we saw it in, chapter, in verse 17. We'll see it in verse 26 later. A person with dead faith does not and cannot produce works that are truly good and righteous. And the absence of such works is evidence of the absence of saving faith. The New Testament is replete with examples of such dead faith. One example was when John the Baptist saw the, many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees coming to him for baptism in Matthew seven three seven nine. 9. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose you can say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God can raise up children to Abraham. James was basically saying, you cannot count on your heritage for salvation, no matter how great it may be. If you truly trust in God and belong to Him, you will give evidence of it by repenting of your sins and living righteously. His calling them vipers made it clear that their lives were anything but righteous and that their profession of faith was therefore dead. James' primary audience was Jewish, the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad in James 1 1. Those Jews were identified, had the Jew, those Jews that had identified themselves with the Christian faith, many of them doubtless at considerable cost, mostly unsynagogued. As in most assemblies, however, some of them were genuine believers and some of them were not. That was the reason for James presenting so many tests of faith. It is why Paul also admonishes us examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13:5 Some Jews had gone from an extreme legalistic Judaism to the opposite extreme of an antinomian Christianity. They replaced a works-righteous system with one that required no works at all. Those Jews who were honest had long since realized that they could not possibly keep all the commandments of God or meet his standards of righteousness. The law was hopelessly demanding burden that they could not possibly carry. And that's the purpose of the law, to realize that we can't keep it, that we need something outside of ourselves that can save us, our savior. Over the previous centuries, rabbis had added all more, more burdens in the form of in the form of traditions which they laid on men's hearts and shoulders. Consequently, when they heard the gospel of salvation through grace and faith alone, many Jews immediately were attracted. Some assumed this new religion gave everything and demanded nothing. Some people would make a profession of believing about Christ, but with a mistaken notion that because of works are not efficacious for salvation, they are therefore not necessary for anything. The inevitable result was non-saving faith and a type of living that differed little, if at all, from the way they had formerly lived. It may have even led to a worse conduct of life. In James 2.14-20, James provides three characteristics of such false, dead, and worthless faith. Empty confession, false compassion, and shallow conviction. Let's look first at empty confession, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The phrase, my brothers, perhaps refers especially to James' fellows Jews, but he's also addressing the church at large. When he says, if someone says, is the phrase that governs the interpretation of the entire passage. James does not say that that person actually has saving faith, but he claims to have it if someone says. No particular kind of faith, though, is mentioned, but the context indicates it refers to acknowledgement that one believes the basic, basic truths of the gospel. A person making such a claim would believe in such things as the existence of God, Scripture as the Word of God, and presumably in the Messiahship of Christ and His atoning death, resurrection, and ascension. In any case, the theological orthodoxy of such a person's faith is not in question here. The issue is that he does not have works. The verb form in that phrase describes someone who continually lacks evidence to support the claim of faith he routinely makes. Likewise, no particular type of works is specified, but the obvious meaning is that of righteous behavior that is pleasing and acceptable to God, conforming to God's revealed word. Some of the righteous and godly works James has already mentioned in chapter 1 is endurance, perseverance under trial, purity of life, obedience to Scripture, compassion for the needy, and impartiality. Later he mentions, like in this section we're studying, compassion. Later he talks about control of the tongue, humility, truthfulness, and patience. The question, can that faith save him?" is not offered to dispute the importance of faith, but to oppose the idea that just any kind of faith can save. The grammatical form of the question calls for a negative answer. No, it cannot save. A profession of faith that is devoid of righteous works cannot save a person. No matter how strongly it may be proclaimed. It is not that some amount of works added to true faith can save a person, but rather that faith that is genuine and saving will inevitably produce good works. No New Testament writer is more adamant that salvation is solely by God's grace working through man's faith than Paul. And no writing of Paul makes that clearer than does his letter to the church at Rome. Yet in that letter, he unequivocally asserts that God, in Romans 2, 6 through 10, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jews first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Jumping down to verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. James is therefore obviously not in conflict with Paul about the basis of salvation, as some interpreters have maintained. They are not standing face-to-face confronting each other, but are standing back-to-back, fighting two common enemies. Paul is opposing the work-righteousness legalism system, and James is opposing the easy believism system. Both men make it clear that we are going to be judged on the basis of what we have done, for that is a sure indicator of genuine salvation. Do not marvel at this, Jesus said, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, John five twenty eight through 29. Paul delineates in the clearest possible way a relationship between faith and works. The well-known passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result, as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then Paul immediately follows that up with verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. In another place, he says that in all things, believers are to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, Titus 2.7. To state it negatively, in Titus 1.16, Paul says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. It is not that newborn believers immediately understand the full implications of the gospel. Salvation does not produce immediate perfection, but a new direction. The new disposition that hates sin and loves the Lord, and seeks to know him and obey his will to manifest itself in behavior. False compassion. Verses 15 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Second, James illustrates the point by comparing faith without works to words of compassion without corresponding acts of compassion. This is a fitting analogy because dead faith can be characterized by false compassion, by a verbal concern for those in need that is no more than a hypocritical shame, sham. The Greek construction indicates a need on the part of such believers, that it is long standing, not temporary. Poorly clothed does not mean stark naked, but rather poorly and insufficiently clothed, suggesting that they were cold and miserable due to lack of proper clothes. Similarly, lacking in daily food does not necessarily indicate starvation, but rather an insufficient nourishment for normal, healthy living. The reference is to those who are deprived of the necessities of life. Proclaiming that same truth, John asked rhetorically in First John three seventeen, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled is a remarkably heartless and foolish statement which, by which James indicates an attitude of total disregard for the welfare of others to the point of absurdity. People do not actually say such words, but they often imply that sentiment by a selfish disinterest that does not give those in need things needed for the body. Go in peace is an equivalent to perfunctory God bless you. And be warmed and filled is tantamount to saying, God take care of you, while having no intention of being a channel for that care as a witness of God. The Greek verb rendered be warmed and filled suggests even more indifferent, cruel, and a sarcastic attitude, which says, in effect, warm and feed yourself, as if such a needy person could not already have done so, if able. The question, what good is that? implies the answer the fatuous and outrageous comment go and be in peace be warmed and filled is of no use at all being totally worthless just as professed compassion without kindness and care is phony so is that faith which is nothing but an empty claim this is a well chosen analogy because compassion is one of the evidences of true regeneration the story is told of a European queen several centuries ago who left her coachman sitting outside during during the winter while she attended the theater. The drama in the theater was so heart-wrenching that the queen sobbed throughout the entire performance. But when she returned to the carriage and discovered the coachman had frozen to death, she did not shed a tear. She was deeply moved by a fictional tragedy but untouched by a real one with which she was directly involved in and even directly responsible for. It is amazing that so many people can become emotionally involved in a movie, a popular song, or a TV program, weeping over tragedies and becoming incest at wrongs and injustices and yet show no concern or compassion for the plight of a neighbor or an acquaintance who is in real need. In our artificial, self-centered world, fantasy often becomes more meaningful than reality. Jesus taught that his people have a special obligation to each other. In fact, he said to help fellow believers is to directly serve him, and not to serve them is to forsake him. In the day of judgment, that service or lack of it will be the mark that separates the sheep from the goats. Those with true living faith from those with false dead faith. Those who enter the kingdom will not be those who merely profess the name of Jesus Christ, but those whose lives of obedience and service to him prove their profession was true. In Matthew twenty-five, thirty-four, 34, we read, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For why I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or Thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick in prison, and did not minister you. Then he will say to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of one of these, you did not do it to me. Shallow conviction. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? A third characteristic of dead faith is shallow conviction, a recognition of certain facts about God and his word without submission to either. James was not speaking primarily about faithfulness in in the faith, but about faith itself. He was saying, in effect, to anyone opposing the truth, he was declaring about true salvation, you claim to have faith and that nothing else is necessary, that your faith can stand by itself before God and bring salvation. But the truth is, you cannot show me your faith apart from your works without any practical evidence or outworking of it because true faith always gives practical evidence. You cannot demonstrate your kind of faith because you have nothing to demonstrate it with. As just stated in the previous verse, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Such faith is not really faith at all, certainly not saving faith. As mentioned earlier, living faith produces good fruit, for that is the nature and its purpose. Dead faith does not produce good fruit, because it cannot. It is for that reason that a remembered experience of giving one's life to Jesus Christ in a specific date and time that you said you gave your profession of, of, of your life to Christ is not proof of itself of salvation. The only certain of proof is the life lived after that profession is made. Jesus pre- repeatedly warned against false confidence of salvation. In Luke six forty six. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against the house, and it could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them, It's like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell, and the ruin of the house was great. You believe that God is one, James goes on to say. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You do well carries a touch of sarcasm cast against an imaginary but universally common orthodoxy that is devoid of saving faith. Orthodox doctrine is no guarantee of salvation, James insists. Even the demons are orthodox in the same sense of knowing and acknowledging the truth about God. Jewish orthodoxy was always centered in belief in the one true God. Stated succinctly in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 Hear, O Israel, our Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Where most Jews fell short was not obeying the following verse, which commands You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. James' point, as it were, is that belief in the truth of Deuteronomy 6 4 without the obedience in 6.5 is worthless kind of belief like that possessed by the demons. As far as factual doctrine is concerned, demons are monotheists, all of whom know and believe there is one true God. How do they know there's a God? Where did demons come from? They're fallen angels from heaven. They were in the throne room with God. They know God. They are also very much aware that the Scripture is God's word, that Jesus Christ is God's Son, the salvation by grace is through faith. That Jesus died, was buried, and raised to atone for the sins of the world. And that he ascended to heaven is now seated at the Father's right hand. They know quite well that there's a literal heaven and a literal hell. They doubtlessly have a clearer knowledge of the millennium and its related truth than does even the most divided, devoted Bible scholar. But all of that orthodox knowledge, divinely and eternally significant as it is, cannot save them. They know the truth about God. They know the truth about Jesus Christ. They know the truth about the Holy Spirit. But they hate it and them. They hate the truth and they hate them. Shudder means to bristle and tremble and was commonly used of the trembling associated with great fear. Demons at least had the sense to shudder. As at God's truth in a state of fear, for they know that eternal torment awaits them in hell. And you can see the scriptural references to what the demons believe in your handouts for your own study. In that regard, they are much more realistic and sensible than those with false faith who think they will escape God's judgment by their shallow and superficial faith. In your ha- oh, I already said that in your handout. Okay. Further, James asks, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Foolish has the idea of empty or defective and identifies anyone who opposes the truth that true saving faith produces works of righteousness. Useless carries the idea of fruitlessness, lack of productivity. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, Jesus says, is cut down and thrown into the fire. A fruitless life is certain proof that it does not belong to God and is unacceptable to God because it does not have his divine life within. Luke reports that a number of people in Samaria, including a magician named Simon in Acts eight twelve, believe believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and that the name of Jesus Christ and were being baptized, men and women alike. Further on in verse 18, after Simon saw, uh, after witnessing various mi- miracles and seeing that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying of the apostles' hands, Simon offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money have no part or you have no part or part portion in this matter for your heart is not right before god therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven of you simon's belief obviously was not to salvation but was merely a recognition that was what Philip preached was true. His knowledge about God was correct, but Peter warned him that his heart was not right before God, and that he therefore had no part in the working of the Spirit that he had witnessed and acclaimed. His faith was dead and worthless. Part two Living Faith. Verse 21. And in that same way was not Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also the faith apart from works is dead. James is obviously giving us two examples here of living faith, Abraham and Rahab. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That phrase justified by works in verse 21 was a severe stumbling block to Martin Luther. He was so adamantly opposed to the Roman Catholic dogma of salvation through works and so strong of a defender of the truth of salvation by grace alone through faith alone That he completely missed James' point here. And he called the entire writing an epistle of straw. But James was not contradicting the doctrine of salvation by faith. He was not dealing with the means of salvation at all, but rather with its outcome. The evidence that it had genuinely occurred. After establishing that the absence of good works proves that a professed faith is not real, and saving, but rather as deceptive and dead, he then emphasizes the corollary truth that genuine salvation, which is always and only by God's grace working through man's faith, inevitably will be demonstrated outwardly in the form of righteous deeds. Although James' primary audience was Jewish, he seems rather to write of Abraham in the same spiritual sense that Paul does in several places. In his letter to the church of Rome, the apostle speaks of Abraham as the father of all who believe. And in his letter to the church of Galatia, he declares that those those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Abraham is the model of saving faith for both Jews and Gentile. A man whose faith was living and acceptable to God. Yet James says that the father of the faithful whose very faith itself was a gift of God, was nevertheless justified by works. Which was, this seeming contradiction has frustrated and confused believers throughout the history of the church. It is clarified by the understanding that justification by faith pertains to a person standing before God. And whereas justification by works that James speak of in this verse pertains to a person standing before other men. Some have further imagined a contradiction between James' declaration that Abraham was justified by works and Paul was unequivocal teaching that he was justified solely by grace through faith. Such is not the case, however. James has already emphasized that salvation is God's gracious gift in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. And in James 2.23, he does quote Genesis 15.6 which declares that God imputed righteousness to Abraham solely on the basis of his faith. Also, the specific event that James said justified Abraham by works was the offering of Isaac, an event that had occurred 15 years after he was declared righteous by God. James is teaching then that Abraham's willingness to offer Isaac vindicates his faith before men, a teaching which the Apostle Paul would wholeheartedly agree to, Ephesians 2.10. There is no, thus there is no conflict between the two inspired writers. It's important to understand that the Greek verb used here that we translate justified has two general meanings. The first pertains to acquittal, that is to declare a treating a person as righteous. That is the meaning of a relationship of salvation in the sense in which Paul almost always uses the term. He, he declares, for example, that we are justified by a gift of God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, justified by faith apart from works of the law, and that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Romans 3.24, 3.28, and 5.1. The second meaning of the word that we translate justified from pertains to vindication or proof of righteousness. It is used in that sense a number of times in the New Testament in relation to God as well as man. Paul writes to Timothy that Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Jesus commented, the wisdom is justified slash vindicated by all her children, Luke 7.35. It is the second sense in which James is using the word, the Greek word that we translate as justified in 2.21, asking rhetorically, rhetorically, was not Abraham our father justified by works? He explains that Abraham's supreme demonstration of that justification occurred when he offered up Isaac on the altar which is noted above, happened many years after his justification by faith, recorded in Genesis 15, 6. It was then he offered up Isaac, that the whole world could perceive the reality of his faith, that it was genuine rather than spurious, obedient rather than deceptive, living rather than dead. Although God commanded, God's command for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son, threatened to abrogate his promise, of, the blessing the world specific, of blessing the world specifically through Isaac, and also contradicted what Abraham knew to be God's prohibition against human sacrifice, a form of murder, the patriarch trusted God implicitly. Abraham knew that regardless what happened up on Mount Moriah, both he and Isaac would return alive. Although no such thing had ever happened before, he knew that if necessary, God could raise Isaac even from the dead, Hebrews eleven nineteen, He believed unalterably in the righteous character of God, that he would never violate either his divine covenant and his holy standards. Abraham was not a perfect man, either in his faith or his works. For many years had passed without Sarah having the promised heir. He took matters into his own hand, having a son, Ishmael, by Hagar, his wife's maid. His wavering trust in the Lord led him to commit adultery. That, in turn, led to the creation of the Arab people, who since that time have been a continuing thorn in the side of the Jews. God's chosen people through Isaac. In those other instances, such as twice lying about Sarah being his sister instead of his wife, his works obviously did not justify him before men. But James' point is that in the overall pattern of his life, Abraham faithfully vindicated a saving faith through many good works above all else by offering Isaac. When a man is justified before God, he will always prove that justification before other men. A man who has been declared and made righteous will live righteously. Imputed righteousness will manifest practical righteousness. In the words of John Calvin, faith alone justifies. But faith that justifies is never alone. And in the famous words of Steve Converse, no change, no Jesus, no Jesus, no change. You see that faith was active all along with works. James continues to explain that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. It's not that that salvation requires faith plus works, but that works are the consequence and the outgrowth of a completion of genuine faith. As Jesus pointed out on several occasions, the purpose of a plant is to grow and bear fruit. Fruit representing its natural produce, whether figs, olives, nuts, flowers or whatever. Consequently, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew 7:19 through 20, part of the sermon on the mount. Bearing fruit is not a function added to a plant, but is an integral part of its design and purpose. Even before it's planted, a seed contains the genetic structure for producing its own kind of fruit. When a person is born again through saving faith and is given a new nature by God, he is given the genetic structure, if you will, for producing moral and spiritual good works. That is a sense in which faith is completed. It produces the godly fruit for which it was designed, Ephesians 2.10. Just as a fruit tree has not fulfilled its goal until it bears fruit, so also faith has not reached its end until it demonstrates itself in a righteous life. That is a sense in which Abraham was justified by works his unreserved willingness to sacrifice Isaac the only son of the promise was the works by which his justification by faith was demonstrated and made manifest before man quoting genesis 15:6 cited earlier james says that the scripture was fulfilled which says abraham believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness The word fulfilled does not necessarily mean a fulfillment of prophecy, but rather the fulfillment of the principle that justification by faith results in justification by works. Abraham had no written divine revelation to read and knew very little about the Lord, but he responded positively to all that he was told by God. And that is then that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Despite his limited theological knowledge, Abraham trusted in the trust in the Lord was sufficient and tantamount to belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah and the Savior of the world. Jesus said in John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Like all true believers who believe before Christ, who died in faith without receiving the promises, Abraham, nevertheless, was enabled by God to understand that a Savior would come to fulfill all of God's promises, and he welcomed them from a distance. Hebrews eleven thirteen. Due to his belief and refusing and resulting obedience, Abraham was called a friend of God. What dignity! What honor! What joy! Though through Isaiah, the Lord Himself spoke of Abraham my friend. The basis of that divine friendship was Abraham's obedience by justification of works. Just as the father of the faithful, he might be also be called the father of the obedient, because those two godly characteristics are inseparable. In John fifteen fourteen, you are my friends, Jesus said, if you do what I command you. Rahab Verses 25 and 26. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The second person James uses to illustrate justification by works stands in stark contrast to Abraham. She was a woman, a Gentile, and a prostitute. Abraham was a moral man. She was an immoral woman. He was a noble Chaldean. She was a degraded Canaanite. He was a great leader. She was a common citizen. He was at the top of the social economic order. She was at the bottom. Yet Rahab the prostitute is listed among with Abraham in the great gallery of the faithful in Hebrews 11 and was even in the human lineage of Jesus being the great grandmother of David. As reported in Joshua 2, Rahab was an innkeeper in Jericho. When Joshua sent two men into the city to spy it out, her inn was a logical place to go because it was on the city wall and did not require venturing far into the city. When the king of Jericho heard of their presence, he sent officials to Rahab's house to arrest them. But she falsely reported that the spies had left the city just before dark and suggested that the soldiers be sent out to capture them. She had hidden the two men behind the stacks of flax on her roof. And after the officials left, she said to the Israelites in Joshua 2.11, For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father, with my father's house and give me a sure sign. Rahab not only acknowledged that God of Israel was the true God, but she also obviously trusted him. Although she doubtlessly knew nothing of salvation as Christians understand it, or even the ancient Israelites understood it, her heart was right before the Lord, and he graciously accepted her faith for righteousness. He also accepted her protection of the spies as an act of obedience to him, and she was therefore justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. As with Abraham and every other true believer, imputed righteousness based on faith results in practical righteousness reflected in good works. Her outward life of faithfulness manifested her inner life of faith. Also like Abraham, off, Abraham, however, she was not perfect. Her profession was despicable and her lying was sinful. She was not honored by the Lord for either. She had been born into and been raised in a debauched pagan society that the Lord was about to destroy, in which lying and all sorts of gross sin were the norm. But when she had the opportunity to demonstrate her trust in the Lord, she placed her life on the line. Had her actions been discovered by the king, she and her family would have been summarily executed for treason. In his boundless grace, God accepted her trust in him and her service to him, rescued her family, and used her for his own divine purposes, causing her to become a model of faith and an ancestor of the Messiah. Abraham's and Rahab's justification by works was not demonstrated by their profession of faith, It was not demonstrated by their worship or their ritual, and it was not demonstrated by any other religious activity. In both cases, it was demonstrated by putting everything that was dear to them on the line for the Lord entrusting it to him without qualification or justification. They were supremely committed to the Lord, whatever the cost. In this vortex of the great plans, decisions, and crossroads of life, Where ambitions, hopes, dreams, destinies, and life itself are at stake is where truth, faith, unfailingly reveals itself. Long before Jesus' crucifixion, Abraham and Rahab were willing to take up their crosses, as it were, and follow him. They hated their life in this world in order to keep it in the world to to come, John 12, 25. It is also in this same vortex that false deceitful faith reveals itself. James notes in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also the f- faith apart from works is dead. He likens dead faith, profess faith without works, to a body without a spirit. Both are useless, devoid of any life-giving power. It is a sobering reality that all who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be saved. As Jesus warned in Matthew 7, not everyone says who, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Aware of that f- fearful truth, Paul urges in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Abraham and Rahab stand for all times as examples of those living faith have passed the test. Now you might ask, did James pass the test? As we noted, James died in 62 AD, as recorded by Josephus. And the answer of how he passed the test, I think, comes in the story about his death. Josephus said he died by stoning, but that's only half of the story. John Fox tells us in his Book of Martyrs, you can read it for yourselves. It's a whole page, 11 by 17, about James. Take a photograph of your phone and read it on your phone. It's open there, the third book from the end. John John Fox tells us the rest of the story. Being the bishop of Jerusalem, they set their eyes on James after Paul was sent off to Rome. Okay, we can't get Paul because he's off to Rome. Let's go after the next leader in the in the uh, Christian church, and that was that was James. Talking a little bit about the character of James, he was known as being just. Sometimes he was called James the Just, and he prayed on his knees in the temple for all to come to repentance. That his knees had lost all sense of feeling, being numb and hardened like the knees of a camel. The Jews brought James before them and required him to deny before all the people the faith of Christ. But James otherwise than they, they all looked for freely and with greater constancy before all the multitude confess Jesus to be the Son of God, our Savior, and our Lord. After Festus had died and his replacement was in transit for Rome, they took the opportunity to kill James. They cast him down from the pinnacle of the temple, dashed him to the ground, but he did not die. So they said, let's stone him. And James, turning on his knees, Oh, Lord God, Father, I beseech thee to forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Still not dead, one took a fuller instrument. But as I can tell, it's a a metal tool like a, a baton or a bat. Beat him over the head until he was dead. They buried him under that pillar at the temple. James passed the test. As the book of Acts tells us, Stephen, the first martyr documented in the New Testament, passed the test. James, the brother of John, in 44 AD, when he was slain through by a sword, passed the test. Then Fox's book of martyrs tells us how the rest of the apostles passed the test, including Paul and Peter. Credible eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. They knew the Lord because they had seen the risen Lord. And Thomas wouldn't believe, as we know, until he saw the risen Lord. And Jesus said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We believe the testimony of those eyewitnesses. And the next generation of believers after the new apostles also passed the test. And all the martyrs of the next millennium and a half that John Fox documented how they passed the test. What a witness of testimony he has left us to edify us and take heart in the living Lord. Fox tells us how in the 1500s, under Queen Bloody Mary, how 283 Christians could renounce their faith and be saved from physical death, but rather than fearing man because they were spiritually alive, they feared the Lord more and would not deny their Savior and were subsequently burnt at the stake. As we've taught before, William Tyndale, the first person to print the New Testament, was burnt at the stake. And John Rogers, who printed the second complete Bible, he was the first one burnt at the stake by Queen Mary. When your time of testing comes, will you pass the test? Or deny the Lord that died for your sins? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your convicting words, your pointed words, to help us understand the kind of faith that you require, that we were created as your workmanship unto good works. We ask that we all live up to that standard and that we all pass the test. We also pray for those who have not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is never too late. While you are still breathing, we implore you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.